know you have an unfair advantage in your life, something that gives you an edge over your competition. Even if you're not aware of it, today's brilliant guests, Ash Ali and Hassan Kuba, have devised a simple framework that allows us all to find out what our unfair advantage is and how we can use it to help us succeed in life and business. Ash Ali and Hassan Kuba are startup entrepreneurs. Ash skipped uni and was the first marketing director of Just Eat, one of the UK's first tech unicorn companies now worth over five billion pounds. Hassan built a successful startup from his bedroom with nothing more than an online course and desire to escape the corporate rat race. They have both spoken at TEDx and advised and mentored hundreds of startups all over the world. Today, their new book, The Unfair Advantage, How You Already Have What It Takes to Succeed, has taken the business world by storm. So settle back and enjoy this enlightening chat with Ash Ali and Hassan Kuba. I'm Steve Lazarus, and this is Your London Legacy. I've got a special offer for you. Regular listeners to the podcast will know that at the end of each interview, we ask our guests to tell us one or two of their favourite places in London that is personal to them and perhaps not everybody knows about. Well, I've now compiled for you 60 of my guests' favourite places in London, and you can get this unique brochure 100% free. Alongside each guest recommendation is a brief quote explaining why they love the place, a lovely picture of it, plus links to the venue and the podcast episode itself so you can check it out in your own time. It's completely free, and all you have to do is go to www.yourlondonlegacy.com on the homepage and click on the red button where it says Guests' Favourite Places in London, click here for your free copy. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did creating it for you. Keep listening. Best wishes and keep safe. Steve. I am delighted to welcome to the podcast today Ash Ali and Hassan Kuba, uh, two very successful, I don't know, what do you call yourself, IT entrepreneurs, business entrepreneurs, just entrepreneurs, what do you call yourself? And, and of course, successful authors now as well. Where, where do you fit in the kaleidoscope of entrepreneurial stardom? <laughs> Maybe tech entrepreneurs or just entrepreneurs, full stop? Tech entrepreneurs. Yeah, why not? That's a question, that's a question I want to come back to because okay. I am anything but, I'm a technophobe, I suppose you could call me. I, I'm right. of an age when technology sort of bypassed me. Yep. And when I went to school, and we'll, we'll talk about IT maybe, mm. <laughs> when I went to school, computers were just starting out being taught at school and we had yeah. a, what was called the computer room and when I say the computer room it was a room with the biggest computer in the world and you had these little cards these paper cards which you you had to mark off little code on them and put them in and I didn't have a clue what the hell was going on yep and they, they were the, I don't know how, what guys how you grew up with computers in school did you have any of that or do, were you already in palm pilots and software by then well no actually I think in Steve in my era we were sharing a PC a PC Nimbus. Do you remember those PC Nimbus? I don't. I, don't. Yeah, I, so I, I, I think we're sort of giving my age away a bit here. I'm, I'm in my mid fifties now. You guys oh, are a okay. lot younger. Certainly, okay. Hassan looks yeah, very so... young. To me. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were sharing. We were sharing PCs at the time at school because uh-huh. there was some uh, in school. There were limited computers, so um, uh, you can imagine um, we grew up in a, a era where we're just learning how to do basic Excel and Word. The, the, the mere thought of anything to do with IT, IT. Um, lessons and Fibonacci sequence and all that sort of stuff yeah. completely freaked the <laughs> hell out of me. And I, yeah. I just stuck to humanities and politics. I found yeah. that far more, far more easy to get on with. And uh, perhaps I miss miss something. Well, interestingly, Steve, I think the world of tech really needs polymaths and humanities and that type of education to come into it. 
because a lot of people get confused thinking that tech is just about technology and engineering and uh, algorithms and code. But 80% of the kind of roles which are going in the tech industry are non-technical. Digital marketing, account management, commercial thinking, um, design, UX. I mean, some of it has some technical elements to it, but a lot of it comes from knowing how people think and how they work. So humanities is really important. Yes. Yeah. 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 We're actually not as technical as you might think, Steve. Uh, Are you not? Got in, oh, that's, that's no, encouraging. Both, yeah. We both got in there from the kind of marketing angle, which is more about psychology and kind of is kind of about people, really, about communication well, now, and people. Now um, you're talking was, my language. And if you look over my shoulder, I mean, that, that, that's a small selection, just a tiny selection of some of the, the business type psychology, self help guru books I've, I've acquired over the many years. And yeah, psychology and all that, and now neuroplasticity and psychotherapy is, is all where it's at now. And that's the sort of stuff I love. But combined with IT, that's, it's absolutely crucial, isn't it? All the psychometrics. Yeah, I really believe that this, it's the intersection of different subjects is where you find the opportunities. And I'm similar, I'm really into, into psychology and into the, the kind of um, communication, neuroplasticity, that's, that's a term that I've been reading a lot lately, and it's really cool. Absolutely love that, yeah. Well, you'll, you'll like my guest, which I'm interviewing next week, uh, Jules Montague, who's a young um, psych psychiatrist, I think, who's specialist in early onset of dementia. But she's a fascinating lady. Um, talks all about neuroplasticity and, you know, how the brain is affected and memory loss and personality. Fascinating. So anyway, we're, see, we're digressing already. We're not talking anything about entrepreneurship. <laughs> and it's, 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 it's already good. I'm already enjoying myself. <laughs> so how did you guys meet, first off? Over to you, Hassan. How would you, how do you think, how, how would you describe me? And then I'll describe it. So it was, a, it was a funny, because we talk about right place, right time in the book. And it was just one of those kind of serendipity moments. We were both at a business dinner. Um, which is something that neither of us go to often at all. <laughs> it was a kind of networking dinner type of thing. We wandered over the poor quality of the food. It was a bit overpriced and we we're like, oh, this isn't great. It's not the best food. And then we found out we're both from the same part of London. And uh, actually, that was what helped us to kind of continue our relationship. I gave Ash a lift back. Uh, we spoke on the way and um, because his office wasn't far from where I was living. And um, my business was quite passive by that point. I had a lot of free time. It's kind of how we became friends and then investment partners and then co-authored the book together. And now I found out before we went live that all three of us are from the same part of London. In fact, we're within spitting distance of each other. I grew up in Edgware, where uh, Ash, yep. you lived in it. You lived in it. You still live in Edgware. Currently, yes. And you have coffee in, uh, in a place in Mill Hill just around the corner from me. So it's a very, very strange world. And I love all this idea of synchronicity and luck and i think you mentioned in the book as well a lot about luck and you even mentioned a, one of my favorite authors on luck richard wiseman dr richard wiseman he talks about one of his great books the luck factor um so let's talk a little bit about that because everybody has the same amount of luck or misfortune i think it's just a question of spotting those opportunities and what you do with those opportunities because we'll talk about the unfair advantage, which is the, the, the title of your, your new and very successful book in, in, in a minute. But the thing that underpins everything in, in your book is something you call mindset. And one of the aspects of mindset, as I see it, is this thing of synchronicity and luck. But some people will think of luck as, oh, I'm unlucky, you know, life is not good to me. But it, it's not. There's more. To, there's, I mean, I reached out to you guys. Let's just put this in perspective, because you put a post out on a group 
was it called um, Spotter Guest? I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so we don't even know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> cool. it was a while ago, wasn't it? You turned yeah. up on this this um, this app called Spot a Guest, which was people you wanted to be guests on podcasts. I were podcast hosts who wanted to find guests, and you reached out, and I reached out, and here we are together. And that's purely, some would say, oh look, it's a bit of luck, but it's not luck, is it? It's taking advantage of opportunities that present themselves. Yeah, I, I mean, my version of thinking about that, Steve, is the more you do, the more opportunities you have, and um, the key thing is to do stuff. I think sometimes we fall into, a lot of us fall into this uh, kind of perfection mindset and we stick there and don't think that actually life is kind of iterative and it's going, it goes up and down. And so luck will come along in a good place somewhere in your life. So someone might open a door for you. That could be luck. Or you might bump into somebody at a dinner like we did, me and Hassan did. That could be serendipity and luck. But then it's what we do with it afterwards that makes a difference. And some people have a lot of luck in their life, but they don't take advantage of it. And then there's other, another type of luck, which is kind of like just sheer dumb luck or what you'd say, something where it's you've just been given it. So being born in the UK is luck. You could be born in Africa right now um, or another developing country for that matter. So that's another piece of luck that we have. Having a British passport is and being able to travel. I mean, so when you travel, you see that luck and you see how lucky you are being able to be able to go to so many different countries. So when you start to understand it more, it's actually... Luck is important to understand how grateful you actually can be. And that's a good starting point. So gratitude, practicing gratitude, do you think is is a positive reflection of the luck that you or, or can generate luck or you makes you appreciate opportunities that come your way and see them as lucky opportunities? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. What do you guys do to practice gratitude? There's a lot of people have gratitude journals or they write things down in the morning before they go to bed. What, you know, good things that happen in their life. So I've got a 13 year old daughter and um, she's growing up in a different world to what I'm growing up into, Steve, and uh, trying to get her to be grateful for what she has. Uh, every night, we try and um, uh, write down three things that we're grateful for that can be very minor. They don't have to be the big things. Um, it could be, I had a hug from daddy. Um, I got to speak to my friend or my grandmother sent me a, a card in the post. It could be anything very minor. So we try and write down three things that we're grateful for. And um, more recently, I've got one of those um, uh, whiteboards in the living room, actually. And we're actually writing things down on that whiteboard right now in the living room. And uh, that's a good way for us to together think of it. Because sometimes when you become an adult, you forget very quickly because you're so busy doing stuff in life. And you're like, you're always trying to work out what to do and what to fix and where to go. And you're always thinking about the future. But actually, very rarely you stop and think about the little things and sometimes kids can give you that new perspective that I, I didn't know that me just saying hey you did so well in that in class today was going to be so um, impactful on her and that's actually being grateful for knowing that that can happen and there's small moments in life yeah absolutely and Hassan do you do anything from a gratitude point of view do you uh, yeah journal I think or... that is something that I think about a lot and there's a big theme in the book as well is how important because the book is called the unfair advantage and what can happen is one of the things that we really try to keep in mind when we're writing the book is how do we ultimately life is unfair it's not not everything is kind of equally given out in life different kind of advantages and privileges and and we have to rather than focus on what we don't have we have to focus on what we do have and that's kind of one of the biggest takeaways of the book and what we end with and what we touch on we call it like a mindset hack is to think about what you've got to be grateful for and it's it's one of the closest things to magic you could say is having this mindset of gratitude and 
like for me, I, I talk about how I was born in Baghdad and it was uh, in my three years, I was three years old and I lived through two different wars when I was in Iraq and came to London and then lived, lived here in London. And I've got a lot to be grateful for, but you know, for Ash, it's like being born in the UK, he's grateful for that. And um, I mean, you can look at everything at so many different angles and you can always look at the glass as half full, no matter how, how much it might seem like oh, I'm so unlucky, you can get caught in that negative cycle of thinking, oh, life's unfair. And we have this attitude, right, in the UK, British attitude, which is um, if somebody's done well, we just kind of think, oh, that lucky so-and-so kind of thing. We, we don't, we don't, we're not very, it's more of an American attitude to think like, yeah, maybe I can do that one day myself. And they have this, um, you could say, you could say illusion of the American dream. I mean, there is some truth to it, but ultimately it's a, uh, talk about it actually in a, in, in a talk I gave a uh, TED talk, TEDx talk, um, is that it's actually very rare to go from the lowest 20% to the highest 20% in America and rarer than in Europe and a lot of European countries, including the UK. Um, but yeah, it's just an attitudinal thing. I, th I think it's so it's so important. And I, I'm so pleased because I've read so many of these books, but I'm so pleased that right at the end from the off, you kick off with chapter one I'm looking at here it says the title of the chapter is life is unfair and that took me back to a very early book I read by a very successful book by a chap called M Scott Peck The Road Less Traveled I don't know if you've ever read it but if you haven't I thoroughly recommend it and the opening line to this book and, it, and it's it's sold I think it's sold over 10 million copies so far it the opening line is life is difficult and he says life is difficult this is the great truth one of the greatest truths it is a great truth because once we see this truth we transcend it once we truly know that life is difficult once we truly understand and accept it then life is no longer difficult because once it's accepted the fact that life is difficult no longer matters and i just think that's brilliant because we're all we all have the same well no we don't all have the same opportunities but yeah. we all yeah. have the same possibility to accept that life isn't straightforward and as you say it depends if you see the glass half full or half empty but why is it that some people will have the same opportunities or, or let's put it another way why is it some people will come from backgrounds you come from baghdad you've experienced war ash you've come from in a city of birmingham in, in, in a city of birmingham not quite a war zone <laughs> if i like it <laughs> <laughs> but, but but you're not from privileged backgrounds let's put it that way so i'm i'm fascinated what is it that makes people like you see opportunities where others see negativity and, and downside why is that yeah i, I think i'm uh... I was very lucky to have parents who were quite, uh, gave me a lot of unconditional love. And um, in my circumstances, my brother went off to university, my sister went off to university, and whatever I did, my parents were like, hey, be a good boy, you'll be fine. Whatever I did was okay, it's fine, you can keep trying this and fail and it's okay again. So the unconditional love I got from my parents really helped me. Sometimes you can live in a really good area, for example, and have parents who are really stern and serious with you and that love might not be seen there. So for me, I think it was the love that I got from my parents that enabled me to become like a growth hacker and and we talk about that in the book as well, where, you know, the mindset of trying things and iterating when you're doing something and that it's okay to fail. And I think that's really where I was given the opportunity. And I had nothing to lose. You know, I talk about it in the book about the fact that I had nothing to lose. I just, I was all in, you know, and, and things like having no money, uh, part of the miles framework that we talk about in the book was the fact that sometimes you think that you need money to be successful, but 
of course, that's one outcome you can have. But when in business, when you're starting up, having less money can make you so much more creative. And once you've got a good kind of business and it has a good market fit, what we call in the book a product market fit, it enables you to then think about adding fuel to the fire by having money and then extending it out and making it a good business. So uh, the mindsets and the little disadvantages were actually turned into my advantages in that sense. So let's talk about the concept of the book itself. I mean, it's called Unfair Advantage. The uh, subtitle is how, how you already have what it takes to succeed. Now, not everybody would, would, would believe that, but what you've done in the book is, is really interesting because you've set like a self-audit of yourself, which a lot of books say, do this, do that, do the other, set a vision, set goals, set this. And you're doing your head in before you, you, you know where to start. But this is quite introspective look at yourself, isn't it? This makes you look and understand where you have opportunities within yourself underpinned by what we've already discussed which is this this mindset so i i i love that concept for a start it's really good thank you so you have this mnemonic i, I don't think you call it a mnemonic what do you call it mark called miles m-i-l-e-s it's more of an acronym i suppose an uh, acronym <laughs> let's go let's go with acronym that's better yeah i'm showing my poor education an acronym for a framework <laughs> acronym for a framework there you go so talk talk us through uh, at a you know reasonably high level miles so you've got money M for money, I for intelligence and insight, L for location and luck, which we've touched upon, E for education and expertise, and S for status. So there's no particular order to this, apart from the fact Miles is a nice place <laughs> yeah, to exactly. start. Somebody asked so, actually recently, why is it not smile? There, I was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Did you, did you ever smiled. think of that? Yeah. I bet we it never crossed your mind, did it? It, it? it didn't cross our mind because, you know, the, when it initially started, I think, uh, Hassan, and we kept saying this and I kept going around in circles, I, I kept saying people make miles of excuses for not for not succeeding. And that's where it kind of anchored in my head that people make people are making miles of excuses for not su- succeeding. And that kind of stuck in my head. And then it wasn't really meant to be like that. But then it just sort of fitted into what we we're talking about. And then uh, working with Hassan on the Miles framework and building it out, it really made sense. Every every pillar kind of made sense. Um, and Miles was an easy word to remember. So hopefully everyone can remember the Miles framework. So talk to us about money, the, the first first letter. Having money, good. Having money, bad. Yes. No money. You've already touched on the fact of having no money sort of takes away your inhibitions, but burns your, burns your boats. Yeah. So basically, the, miles, the idea of the Mars framework is that just to kind of categorize the different types of unfair advantages that there are. So money is just a very clear one. There's a, there's a nice example that we like to talk about sometimes, and it is in the book actually as well. Where we saw this headline where um, this uh, startup by the name of White Hat, whose idea is to get more people into apprenticeships. And the idea was no more useless degrees, let's get people into apprenticeships. And um, they had raised... I can't remember the numbers now off the top of my head, but hundreds of 100 million or 400 million or 4 million or whatever, some crazy amount of money to help fund their startups grow. Um, but then there were these headlines about how in their first year of operations, they were, they'd made a loss of, I think it was 600,000 pounds. But luckily for them, they'd had an interest-free um, kind of loan from an unnamed donor, an unnamed debtor kind of to them, and uh, creditor. And um, it turns out that the founder of this startup was none other than Ewan Blair, the son of Tony Blair, who basically the headline for in the headline in the tabloids was money bags Blair helps his son with his startup. <laughs> and it, it's just a very simple way of another example we give is, is Trump saying, I, my dad gave me a small loan of a million dollars. 
And of course, this is in the 70s. It's just a small loan, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, imagine in the 70s as well. So it's, the idea is that um, people like to pretend that it's by my dint of my own hard work and sweat and toil, I've had this success. And they don't talk about the inherited money, the bank of mom and dad. And it's quite funny because even in this supposedly meritocratic tech startup world, you know, the Silicon Valley or in, in London, the Silicon Roundabout world, you know what, the first investors in any startup are always friends and family. Oh, I have a rich uncle, oh, my dad's got this friend, now my dad knows this venture capitalists and investors. And it's like, you know what, when we, me and Ash started to invest in startups, we would see like uh, talents is well um, dispersed throughout the population. But then you see the type of people that become successful startup founders, actually from a specific, very specific subset of very, you know, elite schooling um, a kind of let's say middle to upper class young men really young white men but doesn't that put off prospective entrepreneurs right there and then from from the, from the get-go doesn't but that, that there's this pattern of people who are successful have wealthy backers. yeah I'm, I'm sure i'm sure absolutely it does and one of the biggest uh, obstacles is just not knowing the opportunity exists like coming from a kind of more comprehensive school background being on free school meals the type of people that you grow up with you don't even know that this is a possibility. You just think, oh, let me just get a good job, let me go to a good uni, and that's kind of your the furthest your ambitions go is to get to get a good professional, to to be a profession, whether it's a doctor or engineer or lawyer or accountant, and that's as far as it goes really, because you don't think. And the entrepreneur is more of a small business, maybe you have a shop or something like that, um, but you don't think of a tech startup and let's do these apps, and you don't even know that opportunity exists. But one of the reasons we wrote the book is this self-help world, this self-development world. If you read those books, they'll tell you anything's possible if you just believe it and work hard enough. And we kind of wanted to say, mm, actually, that's not what we're seeing <laughs> on the ground as the type of people coming to, for investment. And we wanted to give the advice that was more specific. That's why we had that order in the book more specific to your own circumstances. We wanted to say, actually, you can start, you don't need to look for funding. You can start a business that's profitable and you can sort of bootstrap, you know, in quotation marks, your way up to success by having a business that's profitable from the get-go, hopefully, or very quickly, without much capital expense upfront, which you're going to have trouble to raise funding if you have no background, you don't have Oxford or Cambridge or, you know, one of the top unis in your thing, or you haven't come from McKinsey or Google or Microsoft or whatever. Right, so it's like, basically what we wanted to do is say, it depends. When people used to ask us questions about, should I leave my job and start a business? You know what, the answer isn't yes or no, the answer is it depends. Should I try and raise funding for my startup? It depends. So that's where the, the seed of the idea for the book came from. Yeah, I took us on a bit of a tangent from money there, but, but just to give you that kind of uh, 10,000 foot view of like, why we wrote this book and why is it that we start with auditing yeah i mean yeah and to add to that i think the the other reason um we wanted to write this book was that when you go into a bookstore and you look at the shelves and you look at who are writing the books and you can see the same type of people from the same backgrounds or very similar backgrounds um writing books and telling other people how it is and i used to sit there and read a book and go well it's not like this in the uk 
the first thing was that a lot of books are American. Um, so you're, when you're reading the book, it's very, it comes across as being very, very American straight away. So a lot of people have said to us, our readers have come back to us and said, we love your book because it's got a UK slant to it. It takes the UK into consideration because things are slightly different in the UK compared to Silicon Valley and how things are in America. And so we wanted to get what we call a different view and voice to the marketplace that was not just a 45-year-old ex-Harvard uh, MBA graduate who's working in a C-suite and done a couple of startups now as a VC um, and talking or about how... Or a Gary Vaynerchuk it. saying just hustle and grind 24-7. Yeah, so I was saying with the Gary Vaynerchuk sort of style of um, entrepreneurship is uh, hustle and grind and getting down in the dirt, isn't it, 24-7 and posting out your life all, all the time. It's, it's not quite the same in the UK, is it? I don't think. People do follow Gary Vaynerchuk and uh, oh, yeah. he does say some good things. Um, he does say some good things. Obviously, it's a very brash way of saying, saying things in America and um, the personality comes across and social media amplifies that. And and he says it himself. I mean, uh, himself. Gary, Gary says that I say the same thing in multiple different ways just to get the message across, but I don't say anything new, right? So, and he even says it himself and is very self-conscious of that. And I think the, the, when we wrote the book, one of the things that we wanted people to know is to become self-aware as well. Because sometimes we look at other people and try to replicate what they're doing or replicate another person. And the book is designed in the first part is to understand the environment and the situation. And the second part, as you mentioned before, there's an audit section. And the audit section is more about the miles framework and going through it and then looking at your own circumstances and situation and then applying it to your own life and then leveraging that. And too many self-help books are very prescriptive, whereas we didn't want to make this prescriptive. It's actually every person who reads this book. And we get hundreds of people uh, emailing us and uh, sending us messages saying, this book has made a massive impact to my life. And when we look at their background, that he's a, um, a, ex, a surgeon, he's a doctor, he's a dentist, and uh, he's uh, or it's someone from India who's starting a company. Or And it's such a wide variety of people that we get, don't we, Hassan, that just in, that are inspired by it and get the message. Yeah, because you're you're not going out there telling you, you talk about two types of business. You talk about the um, the lifestyle business, and you talk about the, the 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 mega business. You know, the one that's going to be sold. You know, IPO for 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 billions. Uh, and most people aren't going to fall into that latter category, are they? Most people are going to have the the lifestyle type business, I would imagine. Yeah, so and it's not derogatory to call it a lifestyle business. No, it's of course it's not. A very good lifestyle. Let's take a very quick break just to remind you. If you love the show and would like to get involved, grab some cool stuff, get shout-outs on the show, have us create your very own London Legacy show, or you meet up with us in London for a coffee or something stronger, just head over to www.patreon.com forward slash your London Legacy. Okay, let's carry on with the show. And success means different things to different people. I mean, it does. you don't have to be a multi-millionaire or billionaire to be successful. Your success could be just paying the bills and going on holiday two or three times a year and just chilling, you know, and enjoying time off with your family. That could be one's person version of success. And that is perfectly admirable thing to, to, to have and to achieve and to aspire to. Yeah, it's so big. It's this idea of um, all going... But it, it's because it creates headlines, right? The extremes on the things that turn people's heads, the outliers... And we wanted to talk about the outlier success stories and how actually they're full of all these um, unfair advantages, which you're often unaware of. Because what the media narrative wants you to look at is the rags to riches stories. They'll talk about all the disadvantages they had and then how they were able to overcome them. And it doesn't mean there's no truth to that, but that's just one angle to their story. You don't hear about the, the, the dad who, who gave them the legal advice and then the mom who was on the board of their company on the first 
of their first client. Like even Bill Gates, this was a big one for us. It's just like knowing that actually his mom was on the board of IBM. So that's how he was able to get IBM on board as a client, I think, for their software or something. But that doesn't take away from his talent and his hard work and his merit. But at the same time, you get these kind of multiplier effects, these things which just give you a turbo boost and the right place, the right time, the right kind of timing in history, the right, you know, the right timing in the economic cycles and all these other factors. It's very complicated. I think um, the idea that success is just do this and that and then you'll be successful. It's not quite like that. It's more of an amalgamation of all these different factors that come into play. So the next factor is uh, intelligence and insight. Is, is that all about having ideas, insight into market? And w tell us about that. What, what's the idea behind that? Why don't I take intelligence and you can take insight, Hassan? Yeah. So from an intelligence perspe perspective, um, when I was at school, not many people thought I was very smart uh, in the IQ sense. And when we do school exams and testing, it's all about intelligence from an IQ sense, from a memorization perspective and uh, a different perspective. And one of the things that really stood out for me and still does today, hopefully, is that my friends always used to say to me, I, I'm kind of like the person who glues them together. And I realized I had a different skill set, a different kind of uh, intelligence, which cannot be kind of tested at school in a way. Uh, the creative side of the intelligence and uh, the ability to have emotional intelligence and so um, we talk about how uh, just because you got a bad mark at school or a bad grade doesn't dictate your future success and the fact that you can learn. And the other part of intelligence we also talk about is lifelong learning and how you, sh you have neuroplasticity and you can become better at what you do and learn more things, especially as an adult. Uh, the myth of having a, one qualification or a degree and that's it, it all ends is not really true. So from an intelligence perspective, it, from my perspective, it was like, oh, I don't, ha I don't have this. But then also... There's the other side of that intelligence where you got the Collison brothers who, who launched a, 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 um, a business called Stripe. These boys were super intelligent. Some of the smartest guys, right? They went to, they, uh, they had opportunity to go to Oxford and Harvard and super smart guys. They won, they, their parents were scientists. So they were always in that mindset and they were super, super smart, intelligent guys. They came up with nine lines of code for doing payments online. You need to be super intelligent to come up with that type of concept, right? But it's not all lost. And so one of the things I say in the book, and we talk about it, is to work with a team who can bring all those different dynamics into place to enable you to succeed in whatever project you're doing. So you're an introducer. You're, you're a people person. As much yeah. As a uh, person. Well, yeah, I did a, I did a strengths profile uh, recently, and it said campaigner. Uh, I'm a campaigner. I'm a, I'm a, I bring people together and uh, we, make, uh, we look at our skill sets. And one of the things that we're, I mean, the reason the book is there about being self-awareness is that you're not going to have be the best at everything so you got to know what you're good at and then bring people on board to allow you to do the project uh, prime example of that is the book itself you know hassan is brilliant at um, uh, uh, simplifying complex ideas and writing them in a way that makes sense to the audience whereas my mind's full of ideas and i'm just going off somewhere and i'm like yeah it makes sense to me but then actually how does it make sense to the audience and the reader and that's where hassan's real you know one of his real spiky skill sets is the fact that he can do that he can take complex ideas and put them and also i call hassan kubopedia because he can fact check everything in his head uh like wikipedia i call him kubopedia if i'll say something he'll be like ash i don't think that's true right i'd be like oh okay <laughs> you know so <laughs> so he kind of like uh, he can fact check things and he knows a lot and he's got a lot of knowledge and um, and i think that's really important so for me creative intelligence is really big um so that's why i like traveling and so the intelligence part is really important but then over to insight i suppose hassan yeah, so intelligence is a, is a big one. 
I think just just to summarize there, I think we, we talk about IQ, book smarts, and then and the street smarts and the emotional intelligence side, very important. We also talk about creative intelligence, which is overlooked and is not part of the IQ test, is not done very well in schools at all, um, where Ash is really strong as well. So Ash is really strong with the emotional intelligence and the creative intelligence, full of ideas, it's amazing. And that's kind of, I'm sure, what helped them with, uh, so Ash was the first marketing director of Just Eat, you know, the huge uh, takeaway company. we hadn't mentioned that yet but i'm glad you'd brought it up because yeah. i was going to bring so that up at some point yeah yeah one of the rare kind of uh, hyper growth startup successes which had an ipo right um but uh but one thing what was an insight for me is like you don't need to be amazing at anything because i should be the first to admit he's not strong in every single area it's it's, it's more a case of he's doubled down on his strengths and kind of delegated or outsourced where he's weaker um so one of the things that I like to think about is how The Apprentice gave us this weird impression that we have to be good at everything, you know, the TV show. And they used to, they get people to be like market salespeople of one episode, and then they have to like design an advert and film an advert on another episode. And it's like, well, can you imagine trying to get Mark Zuckerberg to try and sell in a market store? How well would he do? Does that mean he's a bad entrepreneur? So it's just a case of like, you don't need to be good at everything. Um but yeah, the insights part, so the other part of intelligence and insight, insight was so massive because it's about that creativity. It's about seeing something, a gap in the market that you're uniquely placed often to see because of your status or because of your life experience or whatever it might be, you might find a gap in the market, have an insight. So for example, you work in a particular field, you have that domain expertise in that field. You might see some, oh, you know what, there's this really repetitive task that we do at work and we use Excel and it's a headache. And you know what, there could be a good software that can solve this. A lot of, a lot of good tech startup ideas were just like, everything was done on a spreadsheet and then we decided to make an app for it, basically. So just having that insight, or maybe um, one example we give in the book for insights is Sarah Blakely, who's insight. Spanx. Yeah, the Spanx yeah. billionaire, self-made billionaire behind Spanx. And she, it was like, well, would a man have come up with Spanx? Would they think about things like... I don't know, but I wish I'd have done that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that gives me the right silhouette. That's why I want to wear tights. Yes. I don't want the fit part. It's like... Yeah. The so visible panty be, line. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's, it's a case of... I'm sure some men would have come up with that, right? But it's a case of... It's having uniquely place to have an insight into a problem, a gap in the market, some unserved need so important so insight can be a huge unfair advantage as well so is there hope for somebody like me who has ideas but is absolutely useless when it comes to technical competence because i've got i've got some i have insight i'm reasonably creative but i get an idea and i think no i haven't got a clue where to go with that yep so absolutely the first thing to do is find a co-founder find find someone you can work with and that's why having a big network is important. But then also to go out there and talk to your customers about the idea, because um, uh, you might find one of your customers super interested in it and you'll find connections from within the industry as well. So the key is to have the, the network and the connections and find the, the, the co-founder who can actually work with you on the idea itself. And most investors like to invest in a team rather than a single person anyway. So if you're looking for investment, you want to go big, you want to you want to have a team around it. And then uh, I've always said things are done in teams. Uh, every single startup or major project I've started, I've done it in a team. Even the book, both me and Hassan did it together, right? And it's quite rare to have two co-authors writing a book on the same uh, same sheet in terms of thinking. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, I think it's uh, it makes the project doable. Um, otherwise, I mean, the, the book's it's four and a half, four and a half years of 
work sitting in terminals across the world when we traveled. It's not the romantic thing of sitting in Switzerland and uh, in a cabin and writing away, right, Hassan? Is that how yeah. long it took you to write? Uh, yeah, it's taken from, from idea to, to from, from idea to um, uh, becoming a best business book of the month in W. H. Smith, which is amazing for us and a top bestseller. It took us four and a half years. Yeah. It was, yeah, it, not the actual writing process. That's not the bit that takes long. The bit that takes long is, is well, what we did is we treated the book as like like how we would advise people to to do for their products, for their business. So in other words, do the research, the market research, figure out what people actually want, what their needs are. So what we did is we started mentoring startup founders. We spoke to so many. We gave loads of talks about the concept. And then where people would get confused on it or where people would, misunderstand or where people kind of get stuck on it that's when we know okay we need to explain that better we need to do this so we kind of honed it as we went along so that's why it took us so long and we really kind of tried to practice what we preach when it comes so this to, is this is this is proof of concept in, in reality exactly, isn't it? Yeah, yeah yeah and we also did the in, in startup land we talk about this thing called the minimum viable product you try and do the least complicated the most the core product that you're offering that you're trying to do um, you don't add all these bells and whistles to it. So what we did is the lean version for the book, which was a one-hour read, and we were going to self-publish it. And um, and it was based on that that we got a publishing deal because we didn't think we'd get a traditional publishing deal in the first place. But we had that literary agent approach us, and then we had multiple offers. So it was, yeah. it was an amazing experience. But it's because we put that work in from the beginning rather than just trying to, yep, yeah, I'll write anything from my perspective, tell my life story, and put it out there. Yeah. And on top of that, we were practitioners. We were running businesses, right? Uh, we're still running our businesses. We weren't sitting down doing this full time. So uh, being entrepreneurs and running businesses, uh, the ideas formulated and, you know, Hassan spoke on many stage across the globe and so have I with the ideas and sharing them with the audience. And we could see who would, uh, who was uh, connecting to those ideas. And so we kind of stress test our stories and ideas to make it audience friendly. Yeah. So, you know, we, we use the startup techniques and we call it the agile technique to be agile in developing a product or a service. And a lot of books, you know, you can be there for three years with the studies and then you, you launch a book and then it's already outdated. But what we designed is something which is evergreen, long lasting. It's uh, it's core to the thinking of how you should uh, do things in life, I think. And we spent, you know, four and a half years developing the idea, writing the idea, sharing the idea. But we shared a lot of the things on stage and spoke to a lot of people about this as well as being practitioners. So the book you can see comes from a very, there's lots of practical elements to it rather than just a, a thesis. And that's something which we're really proud of to make it much more practically orientated. So I've seen you've both done TED Talks on the theme, The Unfair Advantage. Were you sure. doing that before you got the, the, the deal? So you're yeah. actually out, out there talking about the concepts beforehand? Uh, the book, I think for you, Hassan, the book, we already had to sign the publishing deal when you did yeah. the talk. But then well, for me, it was the very, very first time I was sharing the idea. And I yeah, look back at you were that. out there in 2017 or 2018, I think. That's talk, right. Yeah, talk. yeah. You, you, Hassan was, I think, 2019 last year. That's right. right. So, so when I look back at that TEDx talk and I go, wow, um, you know, where's this idea formulated to? But we had a big idea and we wanted to share it. And we got super lucky to be invited to both of these uh, TEDx talks. Hassan's was a uh, blue. No, off you're the, not lucky. The we, we've established you're not lucky. <laughs> <laughs> well, how did those invitations come about? Let's talk about it. Hassan is actually alumni of SOAS, and he did the TEDx at SOAS, right? And yeah. I was recommended by the alumni of TEDx uh, Royal Holloway University. So SOAS is what's SOAS? The School of Oriental and African Studies. It's um, it's part of the University of London. And it's really focused on the developing world and 
it was essentially set up during colonial times to learn about all the colonies and send people out there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it won't be around for much longer than I tell. <laughs> well, now it's very now it's a very lefty and anti-colonial place. It's gone completely the other way. So it's yeah, it's really interesting. But uh, yeah, it's an interesting place because you get all these different ideas. And I did economics there, and there were some interesting professors there too. But uh, yeah, it was it's pretty cool. It's in Russell Square in. Uh, I, no, I, I have actually been there. Now you've mentioned it, I have actually been inside the building yeah. uh, okay. in, in another life for my, for my work. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so location and luck, we've touched upon that to a, to a degree. So I don't, I don't want to sort of dwell too much on luck because we, we know to a large degree you make, you make your own luck to put no finer point in it. Education and expertise we've, we've spoken about uh, uh, as well. Status is something I'm fascinated about. Status what is what do you mean it's by probably, status? It's probably the biggest unfair advantage of status is how you come across. You know, we have this thing of don't judge a book by its cover. The reason that phrase Although exists, you've got a very stuff. nice cover, so... <laughs> Thank you, yeah. <laughs> black, black, black and gold, it, it reeks of status. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, yeah, that's what we were going for. Um, yeah. No, I would say the reason that phrase exists is because that's what we all do, right? We judge a book by its... We judge... We do, we do we indeed. We come to conclusions about people within, like, what, a few seconds, a split second? I don't know how long. 50 milliseconds, apparently. Um, <laughs> is it really? There you go. So it's, it's, <laughs> it's how you come across. Status is how you come across. It's, uh, it's You can come at it from quite a few angles. You could say it's um, it can be your um, socioeconomic status. So here in the UK, as soon as somebody opens their mouth, or maybe how they're dressed, or it could be how their hairstyle is, or it could be, you know, the kind of, these are the raw truths about, you know, how things are affected. Um, even by the impressions that people have of you. Or let's say it's your status in terms of the number of social media followers you have or how slick your LinkedIn profile or your Twitter profile looks. Um, or it could just be your status as a man or as a woman or as an ethnic minority or your sexual orientation. Wherever you might be, it's just to do with how you're perceived. And perception is so big. Perception right. is reality, um, isn't it? Perception is reality, is yeah, as, as you rightly said. So it's it's how you come across, how you package yourself. Another way of looking at it is to say it's how is your personal brand. We now all have personal brands. It's basically what our impression is to the outside world. So this is essential to be aware of. You know, some people are too idealistic and they think it's all about the content of you know what you've got to say, or you know your merit as how much value you add. But you know what, your your status plays a big role. Your appearance, how you come across, plays a big role, unfortunately. Um, so it, it's good to be aware of that and good to know. And just like all the other factors, there are double-edged swords to this. Like, it might have positives and negatives. So it's not all, that's why we talk about the gratitude side. Because even if you think you might be uh, a more marginalized status, let's say you're, you know, for us let's say for a startup founder right for if you want to be an entrepreneur it's usually a, a young man's game but let's say you're an, you know you're a black female like older lady should you give up no because that might help you have a unique insight that a 20 something privileged guy doesn't have right so you might find a gap in the market which other people won't have or let's say you're just from a poor socioeconomic background you're more privy to the needs of people like yourself as opposed to somebody who grew up more wealthy wouldn't realize that it's a big factor right wouldn't have that insight so there are all these aspects to it another very important aspect to status is your network 
there's this idea that your network is your network. It's who you know. It's uh, so, so important. And the reason we put it under status is the reason that name dropping exists. People do name dropping so they can increase their own status. So if I was, uh, I was having lunch with, you know, the queen the other day or whatever, um, Richard Branson, um, that's going to increase your status, which is what you're affiliated with. So these are important. And the last one that Ash likes to talk about a lot because it's so important is inner status. And I'll, I'll leave that with you, Ash, to explain what we think of as inner status. Yeah, I mean, I'm coming from Birmingham and living in London and seeing all these lights and flashy cars and amazing buildings. Uh, sometimes you think you're like uh, you're in the wrong place. And uh, I, I felt like that when I was 19 years old. And uh, now, you know, I moved from Birmingham, but I actually see myself as a Londoner having lived here for over the, more than 15 years now and uh, so one of the things uh, which became very apparent to me was how I see the outside world but more importantly how do I see the inside world how do I see the story of who I am and where I'm from and what do I bring into the into the world and you know I felt like I was at, outside my depth and uh, there's things like imposter syndrome and all these other things that I felt like uh, 19 years old and I shouldn't even be here I should be at university with my friends messing around and so uh, why did I get picked and so the, a lot of these things happen to me but the stories you tell yourself internally are really really important and they kind of dictate your confidence and your um, self-confidence your self-worth and your self-worth which becomes so important in today's day and age and world and so I think that's the mental side is very important. We pick on, we, we actually do have a chapter or a section in our book about mental health for startup entrepreneurs and founders because yes, it's very hard very and yeah. it's such an important part of it. So uh, your inner status is going to be the default and then needs to be the highest point where you can build onto, onto it because it doesn't matter how much your outer status is perceived by other people. If you're not happy from internally and you don't know the right, the right story you tell yourself internally, you'll always be a mismatch and you'll always feel discontent. Have we got IT entrepreneurs to blame for our lack of self-worth? A lot of people like having to follow all these uh, influencers on Facebook and Instagram and all these other social media platforms. Yeah, I think it's one angle, isn't it? I mean, what is it for, for younger women? It's uh, often the case. I mean, there's a lot of toxicity to social media, right? It can. It's, it's not great for them. For you know, adolescents to spend a lot of time. Well, only on this because... morning, only this morning, there was uh, an item on the BBC News of um, top professional female rugby players, international rugby players who've got accounts, Instagram, I think it was Instagram or Twitter account. So the amount of comments they get about how they look, their sexuality, all this sort of stuff, rather than about their performance on the, the, the playing field, they said it's just, I mean, literally doing their head in and having to come off social media. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's a hard one, right? Especially if you're young and you're impressionable as well. Um, you know, uh, media's been around for a while now. We had radio, we had TV. MTV's been going on for years, right? And so kids have been watching MTV and growing up with this kind of um, uh, atmosphere. Now the difference is that you can actually message that person or send something to them and say something and actually sit behind a keyboard. But when you meet them in real life, it's very different. I've, we've met a couple of people in real life like, oh, okay, is that what you really meant? But online has come across completely different and it's quite tone deaf online as well when you're writing something. So it's uh, the lack of tone that you get from some people and you don't know where they're and coming from. Not only from. that, but we look, we look up to people like, I don't Kylie Jenner, for example, or I don't know, you know, some of these other me mega stars online with the multi-million followers. And you aspire, young people aspire to be them. But if you actually went and spoke to them, you think, Really? You're actually not all that. It's just a bit of a, you know, you've got a good team around you, perhaps. Uh, yeah. I mean, they've got unfair advantages, and that's why we've written Absolutely. the book. So you can identify yeah. them. 
So Kylie Jenner, I mean, uh, Hassan, you spoke about Kylie Jenner in your TEDx talk, right? Yeah, yeah. And, so, and there's a case study of her in the book. The, the situation is that what, what happens is we compare ourselves, right, to whatever society holds up as success. So for particularly young women, but not only young women, they'll look at um, it's kind of the beauty models and influences on Instagram, let's say, right, just as an example. And actually they're comparing themselves to photoshopped images, airbrushed images, professionally lit, and all this kind of things which they do to enhance how it seems and how it comes across, plus the fact that you have some kind of, you have the, uh, what's the word, where you're sorting by only those who are super successful. So that's naturally all you see and all you compare yourself against. In a similar way, maybe for us men, what we'd do is we'd compare ourselves to the financial success and fame or prestige of these tech startup entrepreneurs, right, who are on the covers of um, Fortune magazine and whatnot, Forbes and all that kind of stuff. And um, it's just as unrealistic a comparison because of all the unfair advantages that aren't spoken about. Right. So it's it's the I see a big um, corollary between the two. It's very parallel in the sense of that's the issues that we have is this kind of we all like compare ourselves and we need to stop doing that. And we need to set our own vision for ourselves. Absolutely. And, and then people are comparing themselves to people's highlight, highlight reels of their life on social media. Mm. So it's like you're comparing themselves yourself to the best op- times of their life, which have been manufactured, uh, and you're comparing yourself to that. It's like you're comparing yourself to a, uh, a front, uh, the magazine cover every day. The magazine cover has a ten people behind the scenes doing it all, and and, it, and you don't know their life and their struggles, and exactly trials and tribulations that's going on. I mean, you only have to look, you know, at these tragic cases of these wealthy, famous people who unfortunately take their lives because they're behind the behind the scenes, they're dead miserable. You know, they're suffering from depression, all the all the stresses they're under. So you've got to you got to be grateful. <laughs> you got to show gratitude. You got to understand what your definition of your success story is or what your trajectory is and not measure yourself i think it's very important to get that across and you you do that in the book which is which is really good so we are where we are today how is this affecting everybody covid and lockdown and uh how's that affecting you guys first of all and going forward yeah i mean it's uh the first time it went to lockdown i'm, I'm an extrovert naturally and i like to meet people and i'm around friends and family and my network and uh, that was very hard to do but i mean with video technology coming play it's um it's been easier to do it works yeah when it works when it works but it works for a certain time and now i think there's a bit of zoom fatigue coming in play now and, so, and now i'm glad that we can meet people again but one of the things that covid's done it's uh it's made me realize realize i need to start thinking about myself and my own well-being in a different way and I'm trying to reconnect with nature more. Hassan's doing the same thing. I'm reconnecting with my family more. I'm really thinking about why I'm doing what I'm doing and what's the purpose behind it, rather than just going 100 miles an hour all the time. Has, when you the, live in has London, the time and space that you've no doubt had given you more opportunity to be creative in your thinking? Because that's obviously one of the uh, the pillars, the unfair advantages is having good ideas. Yeah, I, I mean, I've got I've I've created four different office spaces around my place. So I've even got an office in my bedroom now. And I'm like, I just need to move good? around more. Uh, yeah, that, that's the, and that's the thing, right? It's just it's not an office. It's just a desk that's in my bedroom. I just have to why, put a why ladder do you need desk. Four different, why do you need four spaces? And this is why I'm, I'm saying it. Because 
when it comes to creativity, I think having that different environment is so important. So I need to be able to move around. And so that was something which I was lacking initially. So, you know, from one one stage being at the, on the balcony to the next stage being on the, in the bedroom and being in, it just that kind of, that was the real challenge for me. And then at the same time, competing for workspace in the house <laughs> with my family, you know, everyone's everyone's on video call and remote schooling. So it's kind of You're challenging. You're all entrepreneurs, that's the trouble. <laughs> <laughs> They're all trained. <laughs> but then, then you get, you then you start to kind of align with what you're trying to do and the other thing i think was was really hard i suppose was knowing when to switch off because you're on call you're just working all the time and you're working longer you feel like you i feel like i'm working longer because i'm not switching off and um knowing when to switch off and switch on was quite a challenge thing challenging thing for me personally and uh, i'm getting through that and i've really tried to build myself into that and get my 90 minute walks and do my exercise and um you know all the things that i need to do to get myself thinking about myself and my well-being physically but also mentally as well and hassan again you're also getting out there getting some fresh air yeah exercise. that's so important i'm just creating that morning ritual and routine and to get out there i'm doing that every morning now just making sure to go for a walk listen to an audiobook um and just to kind of have that space away from being in the house all the time you know because there's no reason to go out much anymore um, particularly when lockdown was well, you, you got right? you got wonderful apps. You got Just Eat, haven't you? You can go, yeah, exactly. go and order, <laughs> go, exactly. go and support. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think I, I fared a bit better in the sense of being an introvert and kind of just being yeah, I'm okay with this. And that has been a very creative time for me to really stop and think about what to do next and what I'm working on next. And so I what are you working on? Yeah, I launched a new series called Success Decoded, um, which was based, is based on kind of longer, more in depth case studies like what we had in the book so it's a way to break down some a big entrepreneur's success story and kind of look deeper into what was the cause of their success and that's why i call it success decode so what format is that it's it's a podcast and it's also yeah so and but it's also an email series so you could actually sign up to the email list and it's very infrequent because they're so deeply researched um but the idea was based on the idea of the book, which is that, you know what, people have all these unfair advantages, let's, let's dissect those. We can't compare ourselves to those aspects of that person's life, but what can we learn from them at the same time? So rather than just pedestalize them and go, oh my God, we've got so much to learn from these gurus and these luminaries of success, versus saying, oh, they just got lucky. It's just somewhere in between and saying, okay, what can we learn? And also, where can we not compare ourselves to them because they had unfair advantages? Maybe they're super talented. So first I did Elon Musk, and I'm still doing a multi-part series on Elon Musk. It's super, super interesting, right? Have you, have um, you read the this, book? Read his biography? I have, I have. I have. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so interesting, right? And um, so, but then I've tried to take it further, and because that biography was written in 2015, to try to include the last five years, try to include any other information that's come out since then. Um, which, for example, his mum's biographies come out, autobiographies come out, and um, she gives more insight into his childhood. Um, there's more things, interviews that he's done and more. So one angle, it's very interesting to look at the perspectives and getting all these the people that go really crazy. He's he's very um, divisive figure because some people really hate him and some people really love him. And people on Twitter have just been like to me, no, no, he's just a rich white guy who grew up in apartheid South Africa. His dad owned an emerald mine. That's it. He's purely privileged. And But actually, he was severely bullied. His father was abusive. And then he had to start from scratch almost in Canada, where they lived pretty much in poverty when he was a teenager and moved there and worked really hard. 
So yeah, if you're interested in that kind of side and learning about the, uh, the background of these huge kind of multi-billionaires and millionaires, um, that's the kind of thing I've tried to break down in a more sane approach, <laughs> like I said, rather than pedestalizing them or saying they're purely lucky. It's kind of trying to find the right angle. And I've never seen somebody do that before. And I thought, here's a gap. Let me do that. People like the ah, success. Sounds, sounds really good. Yeah. So before we wrap up, how can people get in touch with you guys individually and collectively? What about Ash? Start with Ash. Yeah, so I, I'm quite um, uh, uh, quite often I write on LinkedIn. So you can go to LinkedIn and type in Ash Ali, or you can catch me at my personal email address, ash at uhubs.co.uk. It's the new startup I've started, which is about upskilling um, new entrepreneurs. So check it out. You can come along and to one of our sessions, You'll probably even catch me in one of those as well. So, uh, and then we're all on all the social medias. So you can catch us on all the social medias, uh, Ash Alley UK on Instagram. Um, if I, I do try and do some stories now and then across uh, in Northwest London. So yeah, that's the way you can catch me. Yeah. And I'm at startup Hassan, Hassan with one S on all the social medias. And um, I think the best thing to do to stay up to date is to sign up on successdecoded.substack.com. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm just doing some free content on there and just trying to like build it out and build out this new podcast thing that I'm working on as well. Oh, well, you'll, you'll, well, if you're like me, you'll enjoy it. I've been doing it for two years now and I absolutely love it. Can't get enough. You meet some fantastic people. So. Amazing. Ash, you got to get it. You got to get into podcasting as well, mate. You, 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 like, you like connecting and meeting people. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna join Hassan, I think, and I might come and join you as well. Steve, you're around the corner. Close. Why not? So I'm going to give another shout out to your fantastic book because it really is a wonderful book. I sat down and read it in a couple of sessions. It's really that good. The Unfair Advantage: How you, how you already have what it takes to succeed by Ash Ali and Hassan Kuba, and you got I don't know how many dozens and hundreds of five star reviews you got on. Uh, Amazon and it was business book, top business book in WH Smiths. So it's really flying. Have you been surprised by the success or were you yeah, sort of half expecting? Yeah, you know, be grateful for. Yeah, we we didn't know what to expect. We, we never thought, it's even weird now to think of ourselves as authors because we never kind of thought that. I've only just accepted that identity of like, when someone says author, I'm like, oh, okay, I guess I am a writer and an author. Proper published, not a self-published book, a proper pucker book. <laughs> yeah. I, so I, we didn't know what to expect. I always misspell. I accidentally misspell and do typos on my social media. And my daughter always counts me out for it. Dad, you're an author. You can't even spell there. I mean, I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> can't, be like, good, yeah. can't be good at everything. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, it's just typo. Social media, I can't help it. Um, but yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's been we've, we've been super excited with the the feedback, and it's not just been uh, UK as well, Steve. It's been global. We've had people from India and uh, Portugal and uh, um, Indonesia and Dubai, everywhere around the world. We get emails, and it's like, how did the book even get there? You know, it's it's crazy. It's uh, it's been really fascinating. Oh, well done to you. That's that's really good. Excellent. Now, I ask all my guests at this point in the uh, in the show to mention one or two places that are particularly special to them in and around London. So, who wants to go first? Ash, do you want to go for it? <laughs> I'm going to pick on you. Otherwise, Ash, go okay. You go first. <laughs> so, uh, you're in North Western London, so you're probably going to know what I'm going to say. Um, for me, more recently, I've been doing a lot of walking and. I have really enjoyed walking down onto Edgeway into a road called Cannons Drive. And that road takes you all the way through. Uh, there's a lake on the road, beautiful houses, uh, swans and ducks everywhere. You walk through this really lovely 
uh, twisty road straight into a park called Cannons Park. And in Cannons Park, there's a uh, memorial garden. And I found out that it was a King George's fifth memorial garden that was made in the 1930s. Um, and it's just beautiful. It's a great spot to sit in there and just relax. And it's outside and you would never think that park existed in Edgeway or Northwest London. So that's a real yeah. beautiful spot for me. No, fantastic. That's a really good one. And uh, I would I would never have suggested that, but now you've mentioned it. I haven't been to Cannons Park um, since I was a kid. I used to play football there as a cub, as a yeah. cub scout. Many, yeah. many years ago, they used to have sort of football pitches there. Yeah. But uh, it's a lovely spot. And as you say, that road, Cannons Drive, is it Lakeview? There's that, as you say, that lake Correct. with all the willow trees and the, yeah, the ducks. Yeah, exactly. It's so lovely, it's beautiful. Very pretty. Yeah. So we'll, we'll we'll put that one up there. Okay. Hassan. Yeah. So for me, I was at a stage um, when I finished university. So around 20, uh, roughly when I started my business around 2013, 2014, um, I used to go for a lot of walks and listen to audiobooks and stuff. So what I used to like to go to is Bryant Park. I love Fryant Park. It's a big country park, um, just sat in the middle of Kingsbury, between Kingsbury and Wembley. And um, it's got really nice views over London. You get some nice sunset views there. Um, it's a wild country park. It's got some, I think there's even a horse stable. Um, there's like a massive, I don't know if you could hear that. There's like a massive helicopter just outside my window. I, I, I can't. I... Well, okay. I can hear the kids, the kids screaming next door. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, that's the kids thing outside as well. Um, yeah, being, so, being too creative for my liking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that that park is really strange, actually, because I I know what you mean. It is it's, it, you've got Kenton at one side, haven't you? And you've got Kings, uh, the Wembley in effect at the other side. Yeah, and it's like you've got this country country park right in the middle of this long yeah. road. It's really weird in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you just wouldn't expect really it to nice. be there. It's huge. There's a wooded side where it's all woods, and there's another side which is all nice open fields, um, and that's the side with the hill on it. And uh, yeah, I used to just walk there a lot. I've got a lot of memories of listening to audiobooks there, trying to build up the courage to start my first business. And um, it was, uh, yeah, it's interesting times. Interesting. And, and then I used to, um, another time, another place I remember clearly from when I started my business is I used to go to the cafes around uh, Wembley Stadium. There's a outlet and uh, kind of a shopping center there, and uh, yeah, I've got a lot of memories there. Setting up my business. I know it well. Yeah, I know yeah. it well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, only because I used to. Well, I used to. I support uh, a football team who had who used Wembley Stadium as their home for a season or so, and we used to go and hang out, hang out around the coffee shops and restaurants oh, there. There you go. <laughs> we won't go there because we'll end up having a fight, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, guys, it's been a treat to have you both on the podcast. I'm, I'm really grateful to you both for your time, as I know just how busy you are. Thank you ever so much. Keep up the good work, and long may your book continue to uh, succeed. And look forward to your next your next entrepreneurial ideas succeeding as well. Thank you very much, Steve. Thanks, Steve. I absolutely love creating your London legacy for you and the feedback and testimonials are awesome but as it grows so it consumes more and more resources so I've joined forces with Patreon a really cool place where you can show your love and support from just as little as two dollars a month as a silver Londoner right up to three hundred dollars per month where you get the crown jewels each level of subscription opens up a host of exclusive extra goodies, events, bonus shows, and sponsorship opportunities only available via, via Patreon. I do hope you will continue to support what we're doing here, and I'm so grateful for whatever you feel able to give. So please head over to www.patreon.com 
patreon.com forward slash your London legacy. That's www.patreon.com forward slash your London legacy.